0: Welcome to The Lubbers' Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. (laughs) And we are rereading the Aubrey maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien, one at a time. We are just getting into the far side of the world. So, Mike, help us get oriented. Where were we last week? What might be coming this week?
1: Oh, happy to do that, Ian. Thanks. Well, last week, as we opened Chapter 1, Jack was very worried about reporting... The Zambra episode to Commander-in-Chief Ives. The crew learned that surprise was to be sold out of the service. The dinner that Jack had with Charles and Laura Fielding went well, as did his meeting once he got it with the Admiral, with Admiral Ives there, who's to be made a peer. Jack and Stephen were assigned to intercept the U.S. Navy Norfolk before she reached the Horn on the far side of the world. Pierce. she was off to disrupt British whaling and Jack took 40 year old midshipman Holm aboard the surprise as we began to start to see the connections what with this new mission and Holm between the book far side of the world and the movie master and commander far side of the world. Mm. So this week we're opening chapter two, Jack rushes to supply his ship for what could be a six month or more mission and gets underway. Um, Stephen and Martin balance their love of bird watching with the demands of the service and Stephen gets a new intelligence mission. The surprise gets some new officers and some unwanted crew members.
0: Oh great. So we've got uh, we've got a little bit of a changing of the scene here I think in terms of who's around and who's in the crew. So We start out straight away with the idea that Jack's having to say farewell to some of the former crew of the Surprise. Even though there's not a moment to be lost, we learn that Jack did spend many minutes, he lost many moments, saying goodbye and receiving the thanks of some of his petty officers. His master, his gunner, the captain of the main top and the captain of the foretop, all promoted and moving on to their new ships. O'Brien says that some of those had great difficulty in beginning to express their gratitude, but having begun, were sadly puzzled to leave off. (laughs) So I can just picture these guys coming in, taking off their caps, and really stumbling to say just how how thankful they are that Jack's helped them on their careers like this. The Berwick had come in bringing Honey and Pullings and the Reverend Martin, um, of whom more in a minute, and each of them's come over to pay their respects to Jack. So Jack's time is really being taken up with, uh, with people showing up and paying their respects. After he dealt with Honey and Martin, Jack tells Pullings that he doesn't want to seem inhospitable, but he has to take in six months' supplies immediately. That he's got to do this with no master, no gunner, no second lieutenant aboard because Rowan hasn't come back from Malta. Um, Maitland, the master's mate, is in hospital having a tooth pulled and surprises 20 hands short of his compliment. And Mike, we've heard a lot in the books about what a problem it is being short of hands and what a problem it is systemically in the Navy and what a problem that is for Jack. But he really seems to be behind it here. All of these people that he's short of and he appears to be really under pressure to get the surprise fit for this long journey and out to sea. Meanwhile, Killick, good old helpful Killick, comes in to get Jack's good shirt, and just as a little moment about, about the dress and uniform here, Pullings very generously asks Killick to take his Pullings' good uniform and bring him a frock. And I just thought, ah, oh, Pullings, he's such a generous guy, such a good friend, and such a good professional support to Jack, he's saying, let me take my uniform off, I'm going to get in my muck, I'm going to go and help out with all the stowing and refitting that's going on. He offers to help Jack in any way he can, as long as him being aboard won't upset Mowat. And I think Jack says the same as we all know, that Pullings is an old friend. Um, Mowat would says would rise up and call him blessed. So Jack's very happy to turn the stowing of the hold over to Pullings while he goes to deal with the Port Admiral and with the Cooperage. So Off Jack goes to see to the ship's supplies, and O'Brien notices a few changes in the mood of the rest of the crew. We learn, and O'Brien directly points out for us, that the purser and the boatswain, who are still with Jack might not be willing to run themselves into the ground, because unlike the gunner, unlike the master, who Jack could spare and obtain promotions for, these two guys have been passed over for promotion. And Mike, I was really interested in a couple of things here. There's there's some foreboding in the, in the shape of potential changes to the family. We've talked a lot already in this book and in previous books about the family structure of the Navy and the family structure of a warship. We hear it quite often. And we were getting a little bit of that already in the character of Admiral Ives, who's being this strong father figure, sometimes really kind of tyrannical, but sometimes benevolent. We've been hearing already about the rules and conventions that keep this family together. And we see signs already that Jack's own small naval family on the surprise is at risk, even from actions that he took with good intentions to help people
1: out. Right, right. I mean, you know, we we kind of saw Jack going through his own mind about, "I, I want to be loyal to my people But I've got to also be loyal to my ship. So where he could, he was loyal to the people and got them promoted. And Where he thought, this will hurt the ship. Yeah, I can't do that. I know, son, you want to go off to college, but we really need you here on the farm.
0: (laughs) Well, there's there's another reference we should pick up. (laughs) Yeah. So far side of the world equals the Waltons. Who knew? And the other interesting thing about this brewing family drama, Mike, is it's among a class of people who so far have always been pretty kind of solid citizens. We're talking here about disagreements and tensions among the petty officers and the warrant officers. And we've had problems in the past among the sailors and, and each other and between sailors and officers and among the officers themselves. But these warrant officers have been the dependable characters in most of the ship's companies that O'Brien's written about. They keep the show on the road: the boatswain, the gunner, the sailing master, and so on. Right. Maybe, and an, the exception might have been the uh, sailing master of the Sophie, who who fell in love with Jack, and whose attraction to Jack <laughs> caused all that problem with uh, with James Dillon. Right. But apart from that, these have been mostly the backbone of the crew from Bond and downwards, and now these super reliable, super important. Technical steady pairs of hands—they're being replaced, and we're going to have a new and potentially fractious set of warrant and petty officers on the surprise. I see a Lee Shore coming, Mike.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I I think it's great for us to keep this in mind and to realize—you know—we might kind of watch. I'm, I'm thinking about the movie and the dinners. I'm thinking about way O'Brien writes all the dinners, and I'm thinking, hmm. I I don't know. Could be some interesting dinners coming up here, or (laughs) but certainly some interesting things going on in the background. Well, we've got Jack, who's who's been speaking with Sir Francis's flag lieutenant, and he sends Callumie off to get Matron to join him and the admiral for dinner today. So he wants to make sure that Matron is not off bird watching and forgets about the admiral's invitation to dinner. And as Jack is running around town getting things done. He runs into Hennig Dundas and asks him about Southern whaling, now that he knows his mission involves Southern whaling. And uh, yeah. you know, Dundas is, is very excited and says, Oh my gosh, you know, I would lend you my Connet book, but uh I I I I've given it to somebody else. And they go through this hilarious conversation where Jack is saying, you know, who's that? And Dundas is saying, I can't believe you don't know him. You don't know him? And Jack's saying, you know, well, if I did, I wouldn't be asking you now, wouldn't I? So, you know, Jack has no idea that who this is. Dundas explains that this is a midshipman who sailed with Cook, who then as a captain, the admiralty assigned off to help the southern whalers find places to water- for water and wood and refitting. So, you know, knew all these areas. And that he had aboard a, a a Michael Allen, who now is a master who's looking for a ship. He knows whaling, he knows these waters, and he's saying this this would be the perfect guy for you. And and Jack's kind of saying, Hold that thought. I've got to go see the port admiral and, and I gotta get some more men for the ship. So we put a little pin in that. I'm sure we'll be back to it. In the meantime, Stephen and Martin are up at the top of the rock. And we remember this conversation with Pocock last week. Yeah, They've seen 17 black storks here so and a host of other birds, which of course we hear the whole litany name, uh, some of which they have never seen. And And Martin believes that this is a lot like heaven is going to be like, a lot like paradise. (laughs) And Stephen, Mm. Stephen compares, you know, this, the rocks are a little sharp and angular, but other than that, he might be quite right. And, but he's, you know, so they had this funny discussion there as well. And he happens to look down and he sees that Jack seems to be in, in quite a quite a passion, they write it. I, I, I would translate that as having a fit on the deck of the ship. And he's yeah. kind of wondering, you know, <laughs> well, I wonder what Jack's so <laughs> upset about. And, and uh, actually, we find out, O'Brien tells us, that this is Calumby reporting back that basically, you know, Stephen and Martin did not choose to come because, you know, uh, Stephen's thinking, you know, I don't think that I'm going to have dinner today, admiral or no. And <laughs> Jack is like beside himself. Stephen is definitely step one too far here. So Jack sends five Marines and Bonded to fetch Stephen and have him ready for dinner on time.
0: Will he never learn that it always ends up with a file of Marines? <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> and somebody dressing him for himself. <laughs>
0: So we get this nice reassuring message that all is as we expected because now that Stephen is back aboard the Surprise and they're all aboard the flagship for this dinner with the Admiral, Stephen finds himself sitting next to a lawyer. And we get a really fascinating account of this dinner from the topics of conversation that these people choose to follow. And Mike, we're going to dig in a little bit to what might o'brien have been meaning with some of the rather strange topics of conversation that come up at this dinner first of all stephen's opening gambit is to try and make a swipe at jack and uh he very sort of out loud asks this lawyer so how in naval courts might a suit for tyranny and oppression be instituted in cases of extreme disparity of rank whether to take an entirely hypothetical example, a froward commander-in-chief and his accomplice of post rank who persecuted an innocent subordinate might be brought before officers on the same station or whether the matter would have to be referred to the High Court of Admiralty, the Privy Council, or the Regent himself. And Mike, he's, he's feeling pretty confident that he can lay this right on the line and it probably will count as banter, but it'll also count as a bit of a jibe back at Jack. And it's a way of him and the lawyer kind of ganging up together on all the naval types. Stephen, in turn, drinks a toast with Dr. Harrington, and realises as he takes his glass of wine that he hasn't eaten all day. And this wine, this cillery wine, is going down very well. And he remarks that it's delightful, but by no means innocent. Right. He felt the effect of the wine well before his glass was emptied, a very slight swimming in his head, the faint birth "'of a certain benignity, "'a willingness to be pleased with his company. "'Quo merapis, he murmured. "'Sure, it destroys one sense of free will. "'Jove made Hector bold and timid, "'timid and bold by turns, Said so there was no personal merit in his heroism, "'no shame in his running away. "'From a misanthrope, Bacchus makes me sociable. "'Yet on the other hand,' thinks Stephen, "'I had already bowed and smiled, "'I had performed at least the motions of complacency, "'and how often have I not observed,' that the imitation begets the reality. There's a lot going on here, Mike, isn't there?
1: It really is. You know, this Kwame Rappus, our friend Horace, that we were back to a book or so ago, um, and, and this is from his odes number 325, the beginning verses here, kind of, where, O Bacchus, are you carrying me off to? So full, and and if you will, of your wine, so full of your wine, we'll kind of add that in, what's missing um, and thank you for the Wiki P O B for for that yeah. translation there. So we've got the the wine. Are we supposed to take credit or blame for the things that the wine makes us do? You know, is it the wine making and sociable or as Stephen says, you know, I was already kind of faking it till you make it. (laughs) I was kind of acting very sociable. And, you know, the imitation begets the reality. Kind of really wonder about this.
0: Yeah, and he speculated about this before, hasn't he, when he was talking about tobacco with Professor Graham at the beginning of Treasons Halber. He's not sure whether he's taking the mind-altering substance to make himself nicer or he's inclined to be nice and therefore he's taking the mind-altering substance to, to just accelerate things. And I, I don't think he's being completely honest with himself, Mike. This sounds a bit like um, excuse making by an addict, <laughs> right? Who lacks a bit of self knowledge here. <laughs>
2: not
1: Stephen, <laughs> lacking self knowledge, right? Surely not. He's so <laughs> smart about everything except for a few things. You know, aren't we yeah. all, right? <laughs> yeah. So this interesting flow of conversation continues, and and he realizes Stephen realizes that the, the lawyer next to him is talking about. Deer Dens. And this, I, you know, I'm, I'm saying this like I think I heard Patrick Tall say it. It's D E O D A N D, right? Deer Dens. Yeah. And, and these are things at the time that become forfeit to God. Or, you know, oftentimes to the king or to another named official who collects on behalf of God the things that are supposed to be used for pious purposes under English common law around the 11th century and all the way up until 1864 when they were changed in law. So, if, if someone is killed or injured, for example, if a man falls off a ladder and is killed, the ladder is forfeit, it becomes a, a deer den. And, however, in this conversation that lawyers talking about and, and this other gentleman sitting by Stephen, if a child falls off the same ladder, it would not be forfeit. And and they're thinking, hmm, that's that's interesting. And then Dr. Harrington makes a comment from down the table. And he's, he's saying to Stephen, you know, you will support me, colleague, I'm sure when I say that barely one in 10 of our people is directly killed by the enemy or dies from wounds received in battle. Disease or accident accounts for nearly all of them. Certainly I will, said Stephen. And perhaps it might be said, he continues, that these figures suggest the relative importance of the combatant and the non-combatant officers. So you know, they're having, having this conversation and then you know somebody else, this red-faced Marine cries out, or perhaps it may be said that for every man the enemy kills, The Medicos kill nine. (laughs) So we know O'Brien does not merely drop stuff in. At least, you know, we we found so many times when this turns out to be important. You know, Stephen and Martin saw 17 black storks. Well, we had that conversation last time about black swans and black storks. Pocock thought they didn't exist at all. And there seems to be kind of this theme. You know about people seeing things here and what what do you think
0: well it's fascinating that we've got this he's riffing on the theme of perspective, you know what do people see and how do they understand it um he's riffing on the idea that um, that, that I think he's back to this idea of superstition as well that right. he's he's enjoyed talking about before i I was reading this and I was thinking, well maybe o'Brien had written down this thing about Dear Dan that he found in some obscure source. He's written it on an index card, and he's been waiting for a handy moment to serve it up and put it in a book. But I'm sure it's more deliberate than that, because so many other times he drops in allusions and little bits of obscure fact. Rules and superstitions and perceptions and customs all kind of swirling around. Again, we've had it before, this idea that nothing is quite what it seems, that nothing exists for a single plain purpose, but there are multiple obscure purposes behind everything. He's, he's taking us very deep, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, just remembering now too, that part of this conversation was uh, the lawyer goes on to explain about the child not being forfeit. They said, well, back in the day," and back in the day of, as you say, popish superstition of superstitions, yeah. infants were thought to be incapable of sin. So they had no need of the, uh, propitiary masses that would be purchased with the deer din. so like you say it's it's like also things get started for a certain reason but then we carry on doing them and lose the reason behind them so yeah. it really you know makes me wonder ah uh, let's pay attention let's figure out if we see some of this stuff playing out later in the book and where And and you know invite our listeners as well please chime in here You know, what does this rhinoceros mean, right?
0: Well, we've gone so deep and we're thinking so kind of metaphysically that O'Brien realizes that he needs to pull us back into the present day and give us a bit of of physical comedy-like relief. So we get into the idea of tooth pulling. Stephen asks Dr. Harrington at the dinner to recommend a surgeon's mate, specifically someone good at pulling teeth, because they're going to do this long, long transoceanic voyage. They're going to have some dentistry problems. He's looking for someone. He recommends a man named Higgins and Harrington calls him a quack salver, which means someone who claims falsely to possess medical skills. So somebody who's a charlatan or a peddler of false cures. Mike, I think we said that this is an engram hit of circa 1830. So not bad. This Higgins knows no Latin, but is excellent at pulling teeth with his hands. And I think that's going to motivate Stephen to go and find out some more about Higgins. Meanwhile, Meanwhile, Pocock calls for Maturin. And this is the person that we were having the Black Swan conversation with before. The Admiralty Secretary Yarrow and Pocock together tell Stephen that his letter for Diana left with Ray. And my, my, my heart sinks when I read how grateful Stephen is for this because it's going to help get the letter to her quickly. I'm like, no, no, Stephen. Oh. Don't trust that. Don't oh, trust that, route. And meanwhile... Pocock has instructions for Stephen, but he says they were communicated to me in a deliberately obscure form so that it might seem he's withholding information. And Stephen's pretty happy with this. He says he doesn't care. He assumes that it's confidential, so the less known by many people, the better. And what can't be given away by accident is is fine. Pocock tells Stephen that the government had sent a man named Cunningham selling on the packet Dane with a large sum of money to one or more of the Spanish colonies. They're concerned that this packet might be taken by the Norfolk. Surprise could perhaps meet up with the Adane, warn her, and escort her into a South American port. And if that's not possible, or if the port is on the Atlantic coast, then Stephen should leave Cunningham his two chests of coins, but follow written instructions handed by Pocock over to Stephen to relieve him of a far larger sum in bills and obligations. And Cunningham doesn't realize that he's carrying this larger sum with him. So right away, Mike, we've got, ha. Huh, here's something in the story where what it appears to be, in the eyes of this character Cunningham, is going to be something other than what it really is.
1: It's a, it's a great point, Ian. And, and I certainly understand now why Pocock is saying it's deliberately obscure. It certainly is.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And then they go on to talk about another favorite obscurity of Patrick O'Brien's, which is obscure naval jargon.
1: Right. Uh. The three of them here they sounded the ship unmooring. And, and we remember Admiral Ives saying, I'm going to give this dinner, and then I'm headed back to the blockade of Toulon. So they're unmooring, and Yarrow says, I dare say they're hauling away the cat before hooking on the fish. Pocock says, well, perhaps they'll stop her with a dog. And Stephen says, it's my belief that they've raised a mouse and that having seized it with a fox, they will clap on a lizard. (laughs) Lord, (laughs) what a jargon the honest creatures have indebted upon my word, said Pocock, laughing heartily for the first time in Stephen's acquaintance with him. Were your terms authentic? They were indeed, said Stephen. And there are hounds too, somewhere about the mass. So were my cat and fish, said Yarrow. The master explained to them to me only yesterday, and he also mentioned horses, dolphins, flies, bees, a positive arc. I'm laughing along with these guys. And part of the reason I'm laughing is because I have, for the most part, no idea what they're talking (laughs) about as they don't. And I I kind of wondered if it was O'Brien saying, you know what? If you don't have any idea of what I'm talking about in all this naval arms, I'm just telling you, you can laugh along with half my characters because they don't either. It's all right. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure he's doing that, but being O'Brien, you suspect that
0: he's doing other things as well. And this made me cast my mind back to the conversation that Professor Graham and Stephen had had. And O'Brien's making all of the little character traits of his secondary characters tie up here. Professor Graham disliked Pocock intensely, called him a long-eared loobie. And in one of those early conversations way back, was it in Ionia Mission or Treason's Harbour? I can't remember. Um, Graham took great offence when Stephen facetiously kind of flexed his nautical knowledge. And Pocock is the exact opposite of Graham. He's very capable. He's absolutely uh, a, a realistic ally and a valuable co-protagonist for Stephen. But he's absolutely the flip side when it comes to sharing a laugh about these bits of nautical jargon. He finds it all very amusing. And there's just this great light and shade and continuity in the secondary characters, which is really excellent.
1: Well, if uh, as as these guys are all having this conversation O'Brien tells us that a stern flag lieutenant stops at the door and says, if you please, gentlemen, the Admiral awaits your pleasure. So, boom, all three are being called out to see the Admiral. I wonder what he might have in mind.
0: And I wonder whether they're going to get a glass of Sillery again. So, Mike, just in case our listeners are interested in grabbing a glass of Sillery with the Admiral, let's take a short break.
1: Brilliant. We're glad to have you all aboard and would love your support at patreon.com forward slash lovershole. p a t r e o n.com forward slash lovers whole help us defray some of the expenses of making the lovers whole and join us for some additional content. Welcome back from break.
0: Welcome indeed. Um, While we're all waiting to hear what the Admiral has to say, it occurred to me that this is an interesting moment just to stop and remind ourselves where O'Brien was up to in his life. We haven't been particularly kind of biographical about O'Brien, but I do remember us saying way back in Master and Commander that he was at this stage in his publishing career where nothing much was going on, and he picked up these seafaring tales almost by accident but now he's written nine of them and i thought i'd just take a little look and see where are we now is he now completely famous and is the o'brien canon mania completely taking root and the answer is even this far along in the canon not yet for o'brien at this stage in the career as he's writing and publishing far side of the world there was good news but some less good news the good news is, as as we have all read and discussed, he's really getting into his stride as an author. And I was taking a look into the biography that Dean King wrote of Patrick, and uh, we read that O'Brien had been inspired by the success of HMS Surprise and Mauritius Command to map out a kind of long-term set of story arcs that became the content for the series of novels that run from Desolation Island up to The Surgeon's Mate and even beyond. And he really kind of relished laying out these long story arcs. And this was doing great for him, especially in the UK. He was getting great critical notices in the UK. Um, He had some fans who were advocating for him. The scholar and reviewer T.J. Binion and the famous novelist Iris Murdoch were both writing about how great these books were. And he was producing these novels on this kind of arc that he'd already planned at the rate of about one every year, taking time every year for the for the wine harvest, for the Vendange in colure, That was the good news. The less good news that, at this moment, he still really only has the UK readership because his original American publisher, Lippincott, had dropped the books after HMS Surprise. So he was making what money he could from his UK readership, but not a lot. And in Dean King's book, he mentions the royalty advance for Treason's Harbour, for example, and it's... In in money of the day, it was just about enough to buy a small family car. Mm. So by the time we get to Far Side of the World, which he finished writing in 1983 and published in 1984, he was starting to mix in other projects as well, other writing projects like translations alongside writing these books and he was getting very little from the U.S. He'd had a couple of really bad critical notices in the U.S. He had no publisher in the U.S. His friends, his editor, his agent, and his friends in the business were trying to drum up interest in the U.S. But even these many books into the canon, we're still not yet at the stage where he'd started to garner a big fan base. So, Mike, celebrity recommendations, TV show appearances, the Jeff Hunt cover art, all talk of movie rights is all still quite some way in the future.
1: That's amazing.
0: And I was really surprised when I yeah, I went to check in on this. I'm thinking, he's really stuck with it. <laughs> he's really stuck with it to produce so many books of still consistently high quality, even though he's not yet hitting his stride as far as audience reach
1: is concerned. Wow. And aren't we delighted that he did?
0: Aren't we Indeed aren't we indeed? But it also is is telling us, looking one or two years ahead, the interest in the books and the direction towards the movie that became Master and Commander Far Side of the World must have picked up pretty quickly. There's a pretty rapid change in fortunes coming pretty soon, but we're not there yet.
1: Cool. Well, thank you, Ian. I I think uh, it'd be fun to, you know, without going into the contested stuff, just to kind of follow this arc along as we go. I really like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, We were waiting before break to hear what the Admiral has to say. And in classic O'Brien style, we never find out. <laughs> mm-hmm. We move on. And so as, as we rejoin, Stephen has returned to the surprise. And Jack tells him, you know, we're, we're getting ready to finish. So if you've got anything to do on shore, you need to head on shore and get that done before we go. So Stephen heads straight to the hospital to go check out Higgins. And he watches him extract some teeth. And he's very impressed by what he sees. And he asks him to join him on the surprise. And Higgins is interested, but he asks where they're bound. And Stephen replies, Batavia. So Batavia, capital of the Dutch East Indies. So present day Jakarta, Indonesia. And, And Higgins is a little worried about the Yellow Jack there. But... He says, you know, he, he kind of really loved the chance to sail in a ship with such a famous prize taker. And we go into a little bit of, of sort of the Lucky Jack Aubrey tale. So Brian does a nice job of kind of bringing readers back up to speed on how Lucky Jack became Lucky Jack and how in the present day his fortune may be gone, but he still has the nickname and kind of his fame extends with him. Brian tells us that, that Higgins is not alone. Right. There's a lot of people who want to go on this long frigate voyage with this chance for prize money. <laughs> and and Jack has to fend off a lot of people who are trying to join not good, valid crew members, but uh, particularly like a lot of parents sort of saying, hey, Art Jack, take my kids, take my kids. You know, even with the ruse of, of uh, you know, this trip, which it turns out Stephen had made up. Even if people believe that, they still were sending them along. But Jack did, in his mind, he thought, you know, I've kind of asked a few of these captains to agree to take my son, George, on board. And now they're saying, you know, take theirs. So all of a sudden, Jack has four new youngsters for the trip. And while he and Stephen are in town buying strings and rosin and sheet music, you know, Jack tells Stephen, gosh, with all these youngsters, we're going to need a schoolmaster. And he's telling Stephen how he really wants them absolutely to learn seamanship, but he really thinks it's so vital that they get a classical education, that he, he really misses what he wishes he had had. And Stephen, while you know, somewhat wondering you know, whether that's as, as important as, as Jack makes it out to be, suggests that he asks the Reverend Martin. And Jack loves this idea. Even, even though Parsons are considered unlucky, he thinks to himself, you know, all the hands know Martin. And, and then O'Brien writes, he may be holier than now, and this is Jack speaking, but he never thrusts it down my throat. And I've never seen him drunk. I'd be happy to have his company to the far side of the world. Ah. And so we're getting this little <laughs> drumbeat of the far side of the world, the far side of the world, the far side of the world. <laughs> Well, the, the
0: the drumbeat of preparation goes on. And we get to meet one of the important characters of the book. Interestingly, not at all a character in the, in the movie. Yes. Continuing around Gibraltar, Jack spots somebody described as an uncommonly handsome young woman who modestly dropped her eyes, though not without a kind of discreet inward smile. And Jack was wondering to himself, had that first insistent look been a signal that he would not be too fiercely repelled if he boarded her and mike i'm really struck by the way this introduction to this woman is made and it's slightly in passing and she's not given a name and they don't say how do you do or anything so but they just notice each other And this is very different from the first encounter with any of the other principal characters who are female. Anytime we've met a principal female character, she's been speaking, she's been introduced, she's been part of society. And this is one of those across a crowded room moments. Right. In this case, between Jack and this handsome young woman. And that raises all sorts of questions like, are we supposed to notice this woman? Is Jack at risk of having an Amanda Smith episode again? So anyway. That we were left wondering as Jack hurries on to an appointment. He doesn't follow up, but thought that he might see her again. Mm. Stick opinion her, as they say. Oh. But he does meet his old friend Henage Dundas for dinner. And by the way, Henage is often the one who's around to remind Jack, like the the Greek chorus of relationships to remind him to try and keep it in his pants once in a while. Anyway, Henage spots this guy, Mr. Allen. The conversation is not going to go down that route, it's going to go down the route of wailing. Henage spots the master, Mr. Allen. He's older, he's well-dressed, and he appears disciplined, and we like the sound of that. Jack, in turn, likes the look of this guy, Allen. And Jack tells him that Pullings, God bless, has volunteered to come along and assist as a lieutenant and use Honey or Maitland as acting lieutenant under Moat, if... Rowan, the other lieutenant, doesn't join before they leave. So, this is like, this is a little Magnificent Seven moment here, Mike. The, the The gang are all slotting into place, but we still don't know what's going to happen with this woman. Why have we been introduced to the woman? Let's see what happens next.
1: Right. It's like the Blues Brothers getting the gang back together again, but there's a woman somehow. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. What's this? <laughs> well,
0: are you the police? No, ma'am. <laughs> We're Royal Marines. <laughs> <laughs>
1: That's right. I love it. Well, Jack visits Port Admiral Hughes the next day, um, and and luckily, the nephew that the Port Admiral was trying to foist on Jack is is now found another position. Jack's relieved because he was not having any of that, and uh, the, the Port Admiral tells Aubrey, "Well, I found you a master, a Mister Allen, you know." And so this is this is this is one of several of the Port Admiral. <laughs> Talking about what wonderful favors he's done for Jack, and of course Jack already yeah. knows about this, but it works out. And they interview Alan, but Alan seems to be very shy, and and I think you know Jack's first favorable impression is kind of you know a little dented here. But then uh, the admiral tells him that he's assigned a new gunner to come on board today, and Jack reminds him that he is still woefully short of hands, and and the port admiral asks, you know, he well he kind of acts like. He has no idea about that before this, says he's no Cadmus. He can't bring men up out of the ground. And he tells Jack, you know what? Come back in two days. I'll see what I can do. And kind of luckily, Jack and Alan leave together. And and now... They bring this relationship back together. Alan asked us if he can come aboard today. Jack started saying, you know, report by tomorrow. He said, no, no, no. I need to get aboard right away. We got to make sure that hold is stowed correctly. I talked with your former master, Gil. I learned that nothing can be pressing on her forepeak. And Jack is loving all this. He's, you know, like, yeah, Yeah. this is my kind of guy. knows my surprise. He's taking his duty seriously. He's ready to lose not a minute here. And Alan, you know, before they part, asked Jack, what's a Cadmus? Uh, and, and so, you know, we heard the Port Admiral say, you know, I'm no Cadmus here. And Jack sort of says, well, why as to that, Mr. Alan, it might not be quite right for me to give you a definition in such a public place with ladies about. <laughs> so. <laughs> Jack, who you know, of course, had no idea who Conan was. You know, when until Dundas told him about it. And, and back in the uh, in the interview with with that port admiral a minute ago, you know, the port admiral said, "Jack, you know, do you know Conan?" Oh, I assume everybody knows who that is. You know, <laughs> oh well, you know, Mr. Allen sailed with him. Oh, of course. Yeah, right, right. Well, now here Jack is doing the same thing to him. Well, of course, everybody knows who Cadmus is, but. But I can't tell you, and perhaps you better look into Buckin's domestic medicine. He gives them a reference, and so <laughs> the fact of the matter is, Jack has no idea who this is, and, and it certainly has nothing to do with Buckin's domestic medicine. And you know, he he's, he's sort of doing the same thing now to Alan that that had happened to him with the Port Admiral. It, it's just so funny the way this sets it up. So. Jack is is pretending to make this up. And it was called to my attention, you know, somebody else that was reading this book that this is an old trick that Dickens would use when he was setting things up In, in his book, our mutual friend, you know, there's this conversation, but tell me what this is. Well, I would love to tell you what that is, but that's my wife sitting across. We can't talk about that now. <laughs> uh, you know, so, right, you know, the, the pretense of, I, you know, I certainly know what it is. I can't believe you don't, And but we can't talk about it in front of women here. But turns out Cadmus was this hero from Greek mythology who could sew, you know, he, he sewed dragon's teeth and raised up an army of soldiers. So no Cadmus was an easy classical reference to mythology. Not something to do with medical matters that shy women's ears should not hear.
0: But still a closed book for our Jack Aubrey, <laughs>
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> Having navigated past his own slight ignorance of what a Cadmus is, Jack gets back to the ship. And coming there, he's met with multiple problems about taking in supplies. He's working really fast, losing not a minute, trying to get ready for sea. And as all this is going on, he learns that the new gunner, Mr. Horner, who served under Sir Philip and, and in quotes, has all the right notions about gunnery, has come aboard. Um, Jack also sees the carpenter's wife, Mrs. Lamb, come aboard accompanied by this handsome young woman that Jack had exchanged glances with in town. And we learn that this handsome woman is Mrs. Horner. She's the new gunner's wife. Now, Jack's a bit disconcerted that she's sailing with them. He realises, of course, that it's perfectly in accordance with the customs of the service. She's going to be looking after the little ones. She's going to be looking after the youngsters, the uh, the 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 volunteers, the boys who are aboard ship, as uh, as very, very junior midshipmen. And, Mike, I just want to sort of relish this minute <laughs> Just a few chapters ago, at the end of Treason's Harbour, we had it pointed out to us just how benign the effect of a woman could be in certain conditions we, we learned it occurred to stephen that a really handsome thoroughly good-natured but totally inaccessible young woman changed at stated intervals before familiarity could set in would be a very valuable addition to any man of wars establishment right so here we have the carpenter's wife and the gunner's wife and the gunner's wife is quite a looker I think that we're learning all about this <laughs> to raise a bit of a bit of predestination here. I think things are perhaps not going to go entirely smoothly in the uh in the mixed male and female family of the crew of HMS Surprise.
1: Well, you know, Stephen is an enlightenment man. We we've, we've got a great experiment set up here. In so far as she's totally good-natured and totally inaccessible, we can find out if Stephen was right. Yeah. <laughs> that night over Toasted cheese and music, one of my favorite kind of combinations in in the canon. Jack tells Stephen about Pullings volunteering to sail with them and and how Pullings, rather than sit on shore with no hopes for a ship, can use this voyage to increase his chances of getting one when they return, that the Admiralty will look really kindly on this kind of thing, and in particular, if they have a little glory along the way that Pullings can share in. And Stephen ask if there's going to be any problem having two first lieutenants. And Jack says, Pullings and Moet have have worked that all out. And Stephen points out that the first lieutenant has always been said to be wedded to his ship. So now we've got yeah. essentially two husbands, right? A case of polyandry, multiple husbands. And thinking about Mrs. Horner, O'Brien tells us, Jack says he hopes it's the only case of polyandry they see on this voyage. So this is, boy, like you said, we're starting to think, wait a minute here. You know, O'Brien's giving us kind of the steady drumbeat of watch this space. Now, Stephen (laughs) starts to say that he he really can't understand the whole issue of multiple husbands or multiple wives, or wonders whether there's any, as O'Brien says, any satisfactory relation is possible between men and. And he stops himself. (laughs) I think I'm going a bit too far. I'm, I'm sure the thought of him and Diana right now is looming in his mind. And they. O'Brien writes, dashed away into their often played yet ever fresh Corelli in C major. Oh, my favourite kind of Corelli, the fresh kind. <laughs>
2: fresh.
0: Going back to things that may not be the way they appear, the Port Admiral gets in touch and tells Jack that they've solved his problem and paid him a great compliment. Yeah. Let's let's dig into this problem-solving compliment here. Uh, Brian points out that although Jack is often deceived by land sharks and is often separated easily from his hard-earned prize money, he gives the Admiral's smiling look of goodwill and no credit whatsoever. So Jack, we think, is going to be across Any sharp practices here? Let's see how it works. There's this other ship, the Defender, and might, maybe that was one of the ships that had some... Some crew trouble earlier on when we were hearing about Captain Hart and the Pollux as well.
1: Right. All the all the people yeah. that were going up for court martial and coming off of that ship at that big set of trials. What was the plural of that, Ian? The courts martial. Courts martial. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Very good.
0: But we learn that they've decided to give these crew members from the Defender to Jack. And Hoping that uh, on Jack's well-ordered ship, all of these mutinous and discontented crewmen will get straightened out. Jack looks down the list and he sees that they are all landsmen, no prime seamen here. And he's also going to receive a discharge from the hospital. And Jack asked if these were the men that Stephen had seen in the rigorous confinement ward, which is clearly a euphemism for... The psychiatric way. Right. The Admiral says, yes, they are those men, and they are mostly lunatics, but he said they're pretending to be a lunatic to get out of work. I think this is is a fairly commonplace prejudice that might have been around at the time. The Admiral says that he's persuaded Captain Bennett as well to part with the Reverend Martin to go to Jack. And Jack already knows that that's a bit of a fake statement. Uh, Bennett, we know, was trying to get rid of Martin so that Bennett could bring his mistress with him. On the next cruise, Jack asks Williamson to go to the top of the rock, get Martin and Maturin aboard, since they may have to leave early, and that Jack's going to need the doctor's help with some new hands. And we know that Stephen's done this for Jack before, sorting through a new draft of hands and figuring out which ones can be taken on board and which ones need to be sent on their way. And he tells Williamson this time to be respectful but firm. We had the experience of the Admiral's dinner, so he says, don't let them put you off going on about their birds. And we hear no more about it. Jack takes his last stops on shore, looking for cannons and cables, and everything is looking good
1: on board. Later, Jack and Pullings and Mowat, they are they are okay with taking the pressed hands from the defender. Jack says Collingwood used to say that a mutiny was always the fault of the captains or the officers. So you know, kind of an interesting yeah. perspective for Jack saying you know these these might be guys who are waiting on these courts martial, but. You know what? I, I got a feeling the fault lay elsewhere. So, you know, he hopes Stephen will be back soon to o- look over this crew coming from the hospital. And Pullings tells him that you know, wait, Matron and Martin—they came racing along the quay an hour ago, gasping, covered with dust, and calling out to us not to pluck up the anchor or to spread the sails abroad because they're there. They're there below. Now he says, lying in their hammocks or the orlop drinking white wine and seltzer water. It seems they did not quite understand your message. So, instead of, you know, telling them to, to please hurry and get aboard, apparently Williamson went up there and said, "They're leaving. They're going to you're you're going to miss the cruise." So he, he sounds like he was a bit smarter. Than- I love this. Well done. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: So, Jack having not been concerned about the defenders is very concerned about the quote-unquote madmen. And Pooling says he's heard of some of these madmen who are so clever, they pretend to be sane so they can sneak into the magazine and blow up the ship. Well, I I really love
0: this moment. Uh, We're going to get a couple of moments in this chapter of the biter bit. And this is the first one. Stephen gave his sarcastic put down over dinner to Jack, alluding out loud to the lawyer about tyranny and oppression and rank. And he's absolutely been hoist with his own petard here because Jack sent Williamson. Williamson was much smarter in putting the pressure on. And as a result, Martin and Matt have legged it back down the mountain and they're here panting and exhausted, but ahead of time, but ahead of time. Anyhow, meanwhile, the defenders arrive and Jack, I think had known that the defender had been a poorly commanded ship. He's still not happy with the crew and neither are his fellow surprises we get this really poetic description of these landsmen who've been transferred over from the defender they did not it said they did not look like innocent lambs unhung a few were striped guernsey frocked tarpaulin hatted kinky-faced red-throated long-swinging pigtailed men of wars men brilliant description and judging by their answers as they were entered into the ship's books some of them were right sea lawyers too A few were lowering, resentful sailors recently pressed out of merchant ships, but most were landsmen. They seemed to fall into two classes, the one being what the Navy called bricklayers' clerks, men with a certain amount of education who said they'd seen better days, what my old boss used to call doctor's clerk, but that's a different idea. And the other, made up of strong-minded, independent characters probably given to poaching and deer-stealing or their urban equivalents who found any discipline hard to bear, let alone the Defender's alternate slackness and tyranny and then of course there were a few silly weak-headed fellows they were not a draft anyone would have chosen and the surprises looked at them with pursed lips and cold disapproval but all the officers had seen far worse and we get this little mention that Pullings knew one of them a guy called Nagel a former quartermaster who was obstinate and argumentative And we also hear that Moet knew Compton, the barber, who had performed as a ventriloquist. And, Mike, I think it's fair to say that if you're following the book, we're going to hear about Compton soon. If you're following the movie, then Nagel becomes a character that makes it into the movie. So very, very low-key Russell Crowe alert there.
1: There you go. Well, Stephen, as you mentioned earlier, Ian, is very not happy about having been as in his words, practice upon, but does look over the men from the hospital and he passes a handful of them, you know, allows them to come aboard. Uh, he keeps one who's illiterate for his servant and a few others, but sends the rest of them, the ones he says should never have been discharged back. A few of them yeah, you know, would work out, but uh, a lot of them were absolutely the real deal and should never have been let out. Now, one, and I wasn't actually sure whether this was one they kept or one they sent back in, what he called a a genuine Abraham-man, so an Abraham-man, and and I thought, what in the world is that? That turns out to be, and and was a common term of the day and earlier, beggars who pretended that they were patients discharged from the Abraham ward at Bedlam, or the the Bethlehem Hospital, so this criminal insane asylum, but one of them actually – had been somebody who had been let out of there. So.
0: And we should just pause for a minute and relish the arrival of another secondary character. I'm pretty sure that the illiterate servant, a very big, diffident gentleman from the county, Clare, I'm pretty sure that's Padine Coleman.
1: Yeah, well spotted. Absolutely true, right? Yeah. <sighs>
0: so, Jack, meanwhile, gets a message from the Port Admiral. And now we hear the second round of the Biter bit as Jack reports what's in the note. Upon my sacred word, I'm fit to go with them, he means talking about the, uh, the guys going back to the insane asylum. All our breakneck hurry, all our stowing the hold by lantern light, all my hellfire fagging up and down this Sodom and Gomorrah of a town has been quite unnecessary. I need never have crammed the ship with mutineers and maniacs. I need never have taken them off his hands. The Norfolk has been detained a month in port. We had all the time in the world, and that wicked old hound knew it days ago.
1: Ooh. Ah.
0: So, Mike, th- this reminds me, going all the way back to Master and Commander, I wonder if we all remember a facetious young commander called Aubrey contriving to break a spa in order to get new supplies from the yard for the Sophie. Well, I think maybe the port admiral has just played Aubrey at his own game, inventing the hurry up in order to hurry Jack into taking all of these misfits off the Defender and out of the insane asylum. If so, well played port admiral. Right.
1: Ah, Well, here we are, you know, a fascinating end to chapter two. All this hurry. We've got to get after the Norfolk. We've had all this set up about what's going to happen on the surprise. And now we're waiting, right? We're waiting. So we got to start to wonder what what is going to happen to the, if you will, the joyful surprise with all these new crew members and officers. Yeah. You know, when are they going to get out of here to uh, to intercept the Norfolk?
0: And And what awaits them, Mike, on the far side of the world? Yeah. Maybe the only thing for it is to reach for another chapter. What do you say to a little more Patrick O'Brien?
1: Oh, I should like that of all things. Ian. (laughs) I'm with Mosey. Right. Well, that might be our outtake. Well, Well, maybe we can try that again.
2: (laughs) Sorry.